Two and a Half Admins, episode 108. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. I'm Gary. And here we are again. And thank you for joining us, Gary, standing in for Alan while he's away at a conference. People may know you from the Linux Downtime podcast, or possibly from your stewardship of the Pigeon Project. Yep, uh, glad to be here, and thanks for asking me to be on. And when it comes to Pigeon, you're not just the developer. You are in charge of DevOps as well, so that qualifies you to be on the show, I think. Yes, very much so. Let's do some news then. I saw an interesting opinion piece on the register by Rupert Goodwins called The Crime Against Humanity That Is the Modern OS Desktop and How to Kill It. Yeah, you know, when you sent me that link, Joe, I kind of expected to hate it from the title. It's very bombastic, and it's not at all clear what the author is actually going to hate or not hate. But I ended up liking it quite a bit. I mean, it all boils down basically to there has been very little in the way of useful desktop innovation since the late 1990s. And I would absolutely agree with that. Going back to an an incredibly traditional like NT 4.0 style desktop interface really wouldn't bother me a bit. The one thing that I think is of serious value that has cropped up in the, the desktop metaphor since that time, it is useful to have, you know, the kind of really effective, instant, like auto-completing desktop search, mm. where if you know you want to open up Firefox and you don't have a shortcut, you can just, you know, hit your meta button and start typing in fire and like, there it is. And like FI enter and boom, there it goes. Like that really is cool as a way for getting to stuff that you know you have, you just don't know where it is and it's useful. And I have adapted to it as much as I didn't like it to begin with, because the problem with it from my end is it destroyed the old, you know, hierarchical organization where you could say, okay, I want to look in programs and accessories and games and free sell. That feels a little awkward if you know you want to get to free sell and you haven't made a shortcut, but if you haven't made a shortcut, well, just make a shortcut cut. And in the meantime, if you don't know all the things that are installed on a system, it used to be very convenient and easy to kind of inventory a system by hitting the start menu and looking at what things were in the folders. And that way you would not just say, oh, do I have Firefox or not? But there'd be one place you could look and see what are all of my installed options for web browsers. And that's no longer a thing that you can do. And I miss it. Uh, hang on, you can do it in XFCE. I do it all the time. <laughs> do you actually have any other option in XFCE, Joe? Yeah, you can search from the menu, the whisker menu. It's brilliant. It's like Windows 7. Uh, <laughs> it adds the search to the menu. It's brilliant. Okay, we're just going <laughs> to let that one go. I think technically I'm the senior in this crowd, but boy, Joe has me beat in the old man category sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you use, Gary? I guess you'd say I'm one of the uh, hip kids running i3. So, like, I don't fit into the normal paradigm, right? I use a tiling window manager. I don't use icons on my desktops. I don't create shortcuts. All that stuff just kind of gets my way. But, like, to Jim's point, I can understand from, like, a discovery point of view where, like, having the start menu where you can go and find stuff is. But, like, after you do that a couple times, the search just is going to dominate, right? Yeah, on your own system. Right, right. But what about when you got to go work on somebody else's system? I'm a mercenary sysadmin, and I might easily touch a couple of hundred computers in the course of a month. So one of the things for me with that was like, this is probably grasping too far because it takes too long, but you can look at add or remove programs on a Linux machine. You're going to go look at whatever the package manager is, that kind of stuff, right? So like, yeah, the the start menu helps for that. Nothing's as productive like dpackage dash dash get dash selections and, you know, pipe it to less And, you know, oh, I only got to look through like 800 things. It'll be in there somewhere, right? 
This is why you do dpackage minus lower L pipe grep, whatever you're looking for, right? If you want to find browsers, there you go. If there's a specific thing, you know what you're looking for and you know exactly what the package name is, because what you can't do is, you know, dpackage dash dash show me the fucking browsers and nothing else. Like, that's not a thing. Actually, isn't there an alternative in Debian for xwwwbrowser browser that you can search for that and then use that to figure it out? But that's getting way too far in the weeds. But um, jumping around between different machines and stuff, it helps for that. But how often do you need to do that? Like, I, I mean, obviously, you can answer for yourself. I, but for me, like, I, I end up supporting family members with their computers. Can you look at this? That kind of thing, right? Most of the time, it's, okay, do you have Firefox installed or do you have Chrome? Like, I don't care. It's just I need a browser. So it, it doesn't matter. To me, I don't know. It, obviously, your your experience is going to be different, but to me, it hasn't mattered historically. I mean, it definitely matters if you're not sure what browser they're using and they're having a problem that you're having trouble reproducing. And you're starting to wonder, are they using Chrome? Now you got to go find if there's something else they might be doing and they can't describe it because they're muggles. That's why they reached out to you to begin with. Right. But then you have them show you what they do. Sometimes. If you can convince them to cooperate, but usually what most people want to do is just wander off and come back and say, is it fixed yet? That's very true. That's happened to me more times than I care to admit. And if you think that's bad with family members, wait until you're charging somebody money and see how inclined they are to actually assist you. That's a fair point. Fair point. So yeah, discoverability is a big thing. The article was really more rant than like well-organized, you know, thesis with like concrete points. <laughs> The author's point really was that there's a lot of innovation for the sake of innovation, like, you know, marketing driven type stuff. We need to have new shiny things to get people excited about. It doesn't really matter much if they're actually useful. We just need to give this impression that we're constantly innovating and changing and making new and shiny and you want this. And one of the things that always seems to go by the wayside is discoverability. And we don't just see this in the desktop interface. We also see this in like, you know, common office suite interfaces. If you look at the Office Suite interfaces of the late 90s and the early 2000s, they were built around discoverability. If you didn't intimately know every last function of Microsoft Word or, uh, you know, OpenOffice back before the LibreOffice fork or whatever, well, there were menus. You know, you look under the file menu to see operations about files. You look under the edit menu, you know, for things that are going to be transformative of the text. You can discover all the things that are there. Then Microsoft goes, oh, well, no, see, what we want to do here is we want to turn this into like a McDonald's point of sale machine. The hell with discoverability. Everything is going to be about the absolute most rapid, just muscle twitch memory when you already know every intimate part of it. And you can get to it just a millisecond quicker than if you had to navigate the menus. Well, that's a huge win. And they don't care that, well, now nobody has any idea what to do with a tenth of the crap in like Microsoft Word. You have a very few professionals that devote their whole life to like living inside Word all day long and know where all the things are and they're really quick with it and it looks like wizardry. And you have everybody else who knows about a tenth of what they used to back in the 90s to the 2000s because they can't find anything on a ribbon bar like, you know, where is, you know, X function? Well, I don't know. Is that going to be a stick figure of a dog peeing on a tree? Or, you know, <laughs> is it going to be in this toolbar or that toolbar or the other toolbar that, you know, each of which is like, four rows tall of crap. I don't know. Either you know exactly where it is and your muscle memory just drives you to nail that button instantly, or you have no idea and good luck to you. What you're actually going to do now is you're going to Google like Microsoft Word paste special and hope somebody wrote a blog article telling you where the button is with a screenshot. 
are you suggesting Microsoft brings back Clippy then to help with <laughs> discoverability? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing. That is really not quite what I'm suggesting, but um, I mean, that is kind of the direction Microsoft is heading because, you know, they're integrating more and more AI tools into programs. Like you look at all the memes right now about Excel autofill and like, you know, it does stuff like, you know, fill months like January, February, Marchuary, you know, crap like that. Well, that's what happens when you train neural networks to give you what you probably want, we think. But, you know, the we in this case is basically the general intelligence of a flatworm. It's not a flatworm that you train to do things in a, in a word processor. It's a flatworm that is part of the word processor. It breathes word processor. It hunts word processor. It reproduces word processor. That's its whole tiny little brain. I find that most people have trouble getting a grasp on exactly what the scale of AI is and what it can really accomplish because we've never had to deal with that kind of concept before the way these AI assistants really function is more akin to like how toxoplasmosis works in the brains of rats. So toxoplasmosis is this bacteria that you find in cat poop and rats tend to eat cat poop because it's still rich in protein. And when a rat eats uh, toxoplasmosis infected poop, the toxoplasmosis causes some changes in the rat's brain chemistry. It makes it more aggressive and less afraid and therefore more likely to just run right the freak out in front of a cat which will eat the rat, reinforce its own toxoplasmosis load, and crap out more of it for more rats to eat, and the toxoplasmosis is doing great. Now, does toxoplasmosis know what it's doing to a rat's brain? No. No, it does not. But it has evolved into that position, and it's been very successful with that, and so now you get what you get. And that's modern AI in a nutshell, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash two five A. I saw a very funny tweet by someone who calls himself Fallible. I'm willing to bet that Rick Astley has done more to prevent folks clicking on unknown links than all cybersecurity training combined. Now, we don't normally cover tweets. We're not some tabloid newspaper, but this is just funny. And also spot on, quite frankly. It's one of those things like it's a tweet that seems like it was probably intended mostly for the lulls, but he's not wrong. What he's referring to, obviously, is the idea that people are strongly motivated to avoid having to see a short clip of the Rick Astley video, never going to give you up. That is the Rick roll. The idea is you drop a blind link in front of somebody and get them to click it and never going to give you up, never going to let you down. And ah, I got Rick rolled. And so now people are memorizing the last four digits of YouTube Earls to know like, oh, no, that's a that's a really common Rick roll Earl. I'm not going to click that one. 
So you're training people into doing all this kind of due diligence on just links from their friends. And yes, it is incredibly effective. And I think it's because it changes the tone of the whole thing. The stakes are simultaneously low, like you're not panicking, like, oh, God, I'm going to lose my job if I click the wrong thing. But at the same time, I think people have a much stronger sense of I lost the game when they get rickrolled than when, like, they fall for, uh, you know, like a no before phishing test, you know, at their company email. Like, they fall to that and they're like, oh, well, it's not my fault. Like, these security professionals nailed me. Or, you know, even when they get hit with, like, an actual phishing scam, they're like, it's not my fault. Like, you know, the bad hacker men got me. You know, how am I ever going to defeat that? You know, th- there's, there's this big, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And you can't expect me to, and nothing gets done. It's, it's hard to work around. When you bring rickrolling into it, now you've gamified it. And there's the word right there. We all know gamification is how you get humans to really care about something and get good at it. You make a game that you can win or you can lose and is fun to play. So, yeah, we need more rickrolls out there. I remember the days before there was like link shorteners and stuff like that, right? So you you teach your friends and your family and stuff. Don't click on an email link or hover over it and see where it goes kind of stuff. And nowadays, nobody does any of that because you've got URL shorteners and all that. I still do it. Well, yeah, so do I. (laughs) But as Jim was saying, right, like they don't want to get rickrolled. So like they start checking the URLs like, wait, that one looks familiar kind of thing. So, yeah, definitely agree. But uh, I want to say, too, when I saw this tweet, it rang so true to me that I lolled. I literally laughed out loud just seeing this tweet. And as I'm sure so many other people have, where it was just, you know, that's like I couldn't have put that better if I spent a month trying to, you know, phrase it kind of thing. Let's talk about Kiwi Farms and Cloudflare. For those who don't know, Kiwi Farms was or is an internet forum that is ostensibly about internet drama that caused a lot of controversy by doxing people, being very problematic to the LGBT community, and has even engaged in swatting and driving people to suicide. So this is a very serious matter. Cloudflare, for the longest time, did not want to cut them off as a customer for the various services that they provided to them. But then after a sustained campaign, they finally did cut them off. Talking about Kiwi Farms as a forum devoted to drama is... It's incredibly kind to the point of coming off sounding like a Kiwi Farms apologist. If you want an example of a forum that was dedicated to internet drama, that would be Encyclopedia Dramatica, which has largely been kind of killed off. It's been forked and brought back in, you know, various lesser forms. And let's be clear, Encyclopedia Dramatica was already a pretty freaking horrible place. I should know. I spent quite a lot of time on it. It was horrible. It was hilarious. But ultimately, yeah, it was it was about drama and it was about poking fun at people, but it definitely was not about harassing them and driving them to suicidal thoughts. It was never that mean. Kiwi Farms is nothing like that. As someone who spent years on Encyclopedia Dramatica, the first time I ever went to Kiwi Farms expecting it to be basically sort of the same thing, oh, it was not. It was bloody horrifying. When you hear the stories about, you know, the old days in 4chan B and when Anonymous would go into campaigns against people that had pissed Anonymous off, and those people would say things like, you know, oh, I got to get curtains and get a dog, whatever, like... That's 
the mildest version of the kind of thing that Kiwi Farms was about. But unlike 4chan B, which is about basically anything and everything they felt like getting up to for the lulls, Kiwi Farms really is very specifically about harassing the absolute crap out of people that the Kiwi Farms user base does not like. And usually the reasons they don't like them is because their targets are neurodivergent, because their targets are gay, or just because they're vulnerable and those people found it fun to really hurt them, honestly. And yeah, that site needed to go a long time ago. So this whole controversy about Cloudflare not wanting to drop Kiwi Farms, to, to be frank, it's not just about Kiwi Farms. This is not the first time we've had this kind of issue with Cloudflare. Cloudflare has always been willing to tolerate the vilest things it can find, really, as long as it doesn't think it will go to jail for tolerating them. Other examples of things that Cloudflare has helped be on the internet, despite people badly wanting it off the internet, are the Daily Stormer, which is probably the best known outright, no kidding, swastika tattoos and sun and rads, you know, Nazi white supremacist form out there. 8chan, in the days when it was associated with absolutely every mass shooting out there and manifestos, videos, you name it, were getting posted. And it was basically being treated as a scoreboard for mass shooting kills. Cloudflare protected it. They did not want to drop it. And when you look at the places that enable these kind of sites to stay online, you're bulletproof hosts, so to speak. And a lot of the time, Cloudflare is not technically the host. They're a layer that sits in between the actual, quote unquote, you know, host, the place where the database is stored for your forum application or whatever. They'll sit in between that, but they are the place that you go to to get access to the site. And without them, the site immediately goes down. And the circle of folks that support these sites, it's Cloudflare, it's Jim Watkins' NT Technologies, it's uh, Nicholas Lim's VanWatech, and it's the Russian mitigation firm DDoS Guard. All of those are the places where if you're a Nazi, if you want to kill gay people, if you want any of these just incredibly horrific things, that's who you go to. And Cloudflare really sticks out here because all the rest of them are like, it's hard to find out who owns it. They lie about who's running the net block. They get, you know, weird routing schemes going to try to hide what's going on. Whereas Cloudflare operates as, they they operate as a normal upfront above board United States corporation. They are the only above board normal United States Corporation is doing this kind of stuff. And uh, it's unnerving. I don't like it. And it, it is a large part of the reason that I personally, despite being the kind of person who does build sites and applications that could theoretically use Cloudflare services, I ain't gonna. Have never, never will. I'm in the same case there. I've been aware of Cloudflare for a very long time, but I've just refused to use it. But it's not even so much about their track record. It's a whole point about the web's supposed to be this redundant mesh of servers all over the place, but we have a single point of failure of Cloudflare that everybody uses. So then you stack that on top of basically a lackluster terms of service that you can basically do whatever on, and it's just, why would I want to be associated with this in any way, shape, or form? Why did it take so long for this to happen, for Cloudflare to make an exception? Because they've only really made two big exceptions before that you've noted, Jim. Why did it take them so long with Kiwi Farms? The same reason it took them so long every time, because they are free speech absolutists. They go to some lengths to avoid talking ideology too much 
on their public posts, but it seems really clear that it's an outfit that is it's run by capital L libertarian free speech absolutists who feel that the appropriate way to deal with Nazis is to, you know, let them parade down Main Street through your city. And that's just what you're supposed to do. And I will admit when I was younger and dumber, there was a time that I also thought that was the appropriate way to handle that. And the thing is, when there's like five Nazis and there's like 50,000 people lining the streets booing them, yeah, letting them parade absolutely makes sense because what you're doing is you're publicizing a horrific social loss for these vile people and you're reinforcing the idea that this is not normal, it is not to be tolerated, they suck, they're a tiny minority. But when you let these cells metastasize and grow and they keep getting more members and they keep normalizing the idea that, you know, white nationalism is a good idea and all these other things and you get all these dickweeds running around hiding their power level, they call it, you know, all this just nerdy shit where they try to present one face to the SJWs. They know they'll never convert. Another face to the centrist normies who they think will probably be sympathetic to the free speech absolutist stuff, but still are really going to find that distasteful and they probably can't get much further than that. Yet another face for the capital L libertarians that aren't like outright nationalists or racists. They're the like, I don't see color types and they truly see themselves as doing the right thing. But that ideology makes them pretty vulnerable and you can nudge those people further down the path. And then finally, you've got the very last face, which is, you know, for the comfy friends, a comfy friend in white nationalist, you know, alt-right type terminology, that's somebody you can let it all hang out with. You can compare your sun and rad ink. You can talk about the subhuman races, the whole nine. You don't have to hide anything. But this is how these folks operate. And as you let them shift more and more people further down this path, as you let them reach out to disaffected libertarian type teenagers and push them towards, you know, racism and nationalism and all this stuff, and you mainstream it, then, you know, no, man, you don't let 5,000 Nazis parade down Main Street. Five? Maybe. 5,000? No. Once you hit 5,000, you're talking active resistance. And Cloudflare's leadership absolutely does not agree with me about that. With that said, they'll attempt to couch it in slightly different terms and say, oh, well, obviously this is bad, and we think that we shouldn't be hosting it, but we think the government should make us not host it instead of us actually using our own First Amendment rights to freedom of association and say, we don't want to associate with fucking Nazis. That is the stance that Cloudflare refuses to take. The worst part about that for me is they talk so much about how nobody, including vulnerable groups, should be able to be DDoSed and stuff like that. Mm. But you're protecting somebody who's also targeting those vulnerable groups. So, like, I, I don't understand how they deal with that cognitive dissonance. And I mean, I understand that they're, they're a corporation. They're going to do what they're going to do. But it's just it's another one of those things where it's like, this is just shady. You're saying this one thing, but you're totally not following through on it at the same time. Well, this whole incident has really galvanized my otherwise quite hard to put into words bad feeling about Cloudflare. I'd always had this bad feeling, and I suppose for similar reasons to what you said, Gary, about the single point of failure and everything. But I've never used Cloudflare, and I didn't really know much of this history, I must admit, until this came up. 
recently, but I feel kind of vindicated in my previous sort of vague negative feelings towards them. And I think that other people will be in the same position. And I think that long term, they probably will suffer as a result of these very public events. We can hope that's the case. But I mean, honestly, I don't remember hearing about the Daily Stormer and um, HN about them pulling access to them until it got refreshed when this happened, right? So we always run the risk of, all right, it, it's it's in the zeitgeist right now, right? But then where's it going to be two months from now? People are going to kind of forget about it and they'll be back to using them and they're just going to be same old, same old again. And that's probably what they're hoping will happen. So, you know, it definitely seems like the onus is on the people that pressured them to get rid of Kiwi Farms to keep that pressure up, or at least to keep it in people's in the forefront of people's minds, right? Like Cloudflare, they support these people. Don't support them because they're going to continue to support the people that are attacking us. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions, normally for Jim and Alan, or your feedback or anything, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Brandon says, I had a question about a good beginner backup setup. I've got about one to two terabytes of data, mostly family photos and videos and documents and stuff, on a home Ubuntu server that I've been running for some time now. I've diversified out and have a few local web apps with small DBs and a local Nextcloud instance running now too, in addition to a vanilla file share. What I don't have is a proper backup setup just yet. So my question is, what would you guys recommend as a beginner backup setup? I do have a family member I trust with a house across town that would be okay with me setting up a machine there, and I've been contemplating taking them up on it to have an off-site location. Now, Jim, I know what you're going to say, but Gary, what are your thoughts? So, like Jim, I would normally suggest ZFS, but I'm guessing Brandon here doesn't have that set up. In the past, I've used both Borg and Restic to do my backups. The problem with those, though, is you need like a, a file share. So you can't just like send the data directly. You've got to have the file system mounted somehow on the machine to back it up. There's a number of ways you can go about doing that. You can either set it up via SSHFS or using uh, WireGuard or any of the WireGuard derivatives, those kind of things, to get that file share available across to personal uh, internet connections. That's a good way to get started. With both of them, you can set up encryption and stuff too. So you know your data can stay encrypted at rest if you want it to be, that kind of stuff. For me, I'm not actually sure I'm going to 
make Joe's prophecy come true? Because the key word there is Brandon is asking about a good beginner backup setup. Now, the problem with that is I don't quite know how to respond to that because he's asking about a beginner backup to a decidedly non-beginner chunk of infrastructure. So I'm not quite sure what Brandon means by beginner level. My actual answer for beginner backup is, well, you know, you're going to be running either a Windows or a Mac machine. And uh, I just recently tested all the big cloud backup providers, and I thought iDrive wins hands down across the board. It's got the most coherent app. Uh, the prices are decent. It offers you know some snapshot depth to uh, get back files that have been modified, like either if you get ransomware or if you just fat finger the contents of you know a document or whatever, you, you've got a good shot at getting it back. That's a beginner setup. It's easy. Your nephew who thinks he's better at computer than he really is can absolutely just install that right on your computer and have no questions. It's great. So we're at least into intermediate backup. And the problem here is that once we get into intermediate backup, I don't think something like what Gary is suggesting with Borg is any easier than, you know, doing ZFS and replication. It just has more drawbacks. If anything, I think getting set up with a really fat setup like Borg is you probably have to learn a little more. It's been a while since I set it up, but now that you're mentioning it, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of extra steps. And I remember when I moved all my stuff to ZFS, I was like, this is so much easier. Yeah, and so it comes down more to like, if for whatever reason you don't want to do it ZFS style, then what's going to be your intermediate answer? And it's not going to be something big like Anaconda or Borg for me. Um, I'm going to recommend our snapshot. I find that considerably simpler. It's basically just a wrapper for rsync. To a Tyro, it will look a lot like it's doing the same things that you know a proper ZFS replication setup is doing because you know, you'll know you get some snapshot depth. Now, it won't be block level, it'll be file level, but you'll have like a directory tree and it uses hard links to minimize the amount of quote, wasted space, unquote, from having a day zero backup, a day one backup, a day two on down the line. Like I said, that's file level, so it's not going to work with something like a VM image because your VM image is going to change every day, and so that means you'll have a one terabyte new file like every single day. But if you're backing up a directory structure and most of the files don't change, well, only the files that change will actually consume more storage space on your second day backup. So that comes in really handy. You still minimize a lot of your network bandwidth. Now, you're going to be stuck with a lot of storage bandwidth because you got to grovel over all those files. And on the ones that did change, you got to grovel over the contents of the files. And so it takes a lot longer, has more impact on your system. It uses more bandwidth, but you can do it without ZFS. Now, our snapshot is pretty easy to pick up and learn. You can go into the config file and tell it which things you do want it to back up and how many copies you want it to keep. And we'll pretty much just manage all that stuff for you. And it's pretty easy. Monitoring is going to be more complex because it's very easy to know that our snapshot did something today. It's a much more difficult problem to know that it backed up all the things that actually needed backing up today and they're all safe on disk and none of them are corrupt. If you want that kind of assurance, well, then you're back to needing to learn the same thing that Alan and I are always preaching, you know, ZFS and, you know, automated systems like Sanode and Syncoid, or I believe Gary right now is using Zend. It's an unmaintained project that Alan's been kind of monkey patching for his own benefit for a long time now. But, you know, that kind of says a lot right there. 
a very senior storage sysadmin like Alan Jude is still choosing to use a several years old unmaintained orchestration app like Snapsend to help him do things the proper way with ZFS rather than using something that is very widely used and very up to date within its own capabilities like Anaconda or like Borg or like Rclone or like Rsnapshot. There's a reason for that, folks. You get more capability and it's not as complex as you think it is if you go ahead and commit to the ZFS way of doing things. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send any questions or feedback. Thank you very much for joining us, Gary. It's been great having you. Seconded. Thanks for coming on, Gary. Uh, likewise, thanks again for having me. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And you can find me at RW underscore Grimm. We'll see you next week.